Chapter Seventeen of the Blythedale Romance. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Blythedale Romance by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Chapter Seventeen. The Hotel. Arriving in town where my bachelor rooms long before this time had received some other occupant, I established myself for a day or two in a certain respectable hotel. It was situated somewhat aloof from my former track in life, my present mood inclining me to avoid most of my old companions from whom I was now sundered by other interests, and who would have been likely enough to amuse themselves at the expense of the amateur working man. The hotel-keeper put me into a back room of the third story of his spacious establishment. The day was lowering with occasional gusts of rain, and an ugly-tempered east wind which seemed to come right off the chill and melancholy sea, hardly mitigated by sweeping over the roofs and amalgamating itself with the dusky element of city smoke. All the effeminacy of past days had returned upon me at once. Summer as it still was, I ordered a coal-fire in the rusty grate, and was glad to find myself growing a little too warm with an artificial temperature. My sensations were those of a traveller, long sojourning in remote regions, and at length sitting down again amid customs once familiar. There was a newness and an oldness oddly combining themselves into one impression. It made me acutely sensible how strange a piece of mosaic work had lately been wrought into my life. True, if you look at it in one way, it had been only a summer in the country, but considered in a profounder relation, it was part of another age, a different state of society, a segment of an existence peculiar in its aims and methods, a leaf of some mysterious volume interpolated into the current history, which time was writing off. At one moment the very circumstances now surrounding me, my coal-fire and the dingy room in the bustling hotel, appeared far off and intangible. The next instant Blythedale looked vague, as if it were at a distance both in time and space, and so shadowy that a question might be raised whether the whole affair had been anything more than the thoughts of a speculative man. I had never before experienced a mood that so robbed the actual world of its solidity. It nevertheless involved a charm, on which, a devoted epicure of my own emotions, I resolved to pause and enjoy the moral syllabub until quite dissolved away. Whatever had been my taste for solitude and natural scenery, yet the thick, foggy, stifled element of cities, the entangled life of many men together, sordid as it was, and empty of the beautiful, took quite as strenuous a hold upon my mind. I felt as if there could never be enough of it. Each characteristic sound was too suggestive to be passed over unnoticed. Beneath and around me I heard the stir of the hotel, the loud voices of guests, landlord or barkeeper, steps echoing on the staircase, the ringing of a bell announcing arrivals or departures, the porter lumbering past my door with baggage, which he thumped down upon the floors of neighboring chambers, the lighter feet of chambermaids scudding along the passages. It is ridiculous to think what an interest they had for me. 
From the street came the tumult of the pavements, pervading the whole house with a continual uproar, so broad and deep that only an unaccustomed ear would dwell upon it. A company of the city soldiery, with a full military band, marched in front of the hotel, invisible to me, but stirringly audible both by its foot-tramp and the clangor of its instruments. Once or twice all the city bells jangled together, announcing a fire, which brought out the engine-men and their machines, like an army with its artillery rushing to battle. Hour by hour the clocks in many steeples responded one to another. In some public hall, not a great way off, there seemed to be an exhibition of a mechanical diorama, for three times during the day occurred a repetition of obstreperous music, winding up with the rattle of imitative cannon and musketry, and a huge final explosion. Then ensued the applause of the spectators, with clap of hands and thump of sticks, and the energetic pounding of their heels. All this was just as valuable in its way as the sighing of the breeze among the birch trees that overshadowed Eliot's pulpit. Yet I felt a hesitation about plunging into this muddy tide of human activity and pastime. It suited me better for the present to linger on the brink or hover in the air above it. So I spent the first day and the greater part of the second in the laziest manner possible, in a rocking chair, inhaling the fragrance of a series of cigars, with my legs and slippered feet horizontally disposed, and in my hand a novel purchased of a railroad bibliopolist. The gradual waste of my cigar accomplished itself with an easy and gentle expenditure of breath. My book was of the dullest, yet had a sort of sluggish flow, like that of a stream in which your boat is as often aground as afloat. Had there been a more impetuous rush, a more absorbing passion of the narrative, I should the sooner have struggled out of its uneasy current, and have given myself up to the swell and subsidence of my thoughts. But as it was, the torpid life of the book served as an unobtrusive accompaniment to the life within me and about me. At intervals, however, when its effect grew a little too soporific, not for my patience, but for the possibility of keeping my eyes open, I bestirred myself, started from the rocking-chair, and looked out of the window. A grey sky, the weathercock of a steeple that rose beyond the opposite range of buildings pointing from the eastward, a sprinkle of small, spiteful-looking raindrops on the window-pane. In that ebb-tide of my energies, had I thought of venturing abroad, these tokens would have checked the abortive purpose. After several such visits to the window, I found myself getting pretty well acquainted with that little portion of the backside of the universe which it presented to my view. Over against the hotel and its adjacent houses, at the distance of forty or fifty yards, was the rear of a range of buildings which appeared to be spacious, modern, and calculated for fashionable residences. The interval between was apportioned into grass-plots, and here and there an apology for a garden, pertaining severally to these dwellings. There were apple-trees and pear and peach-trees, too, the fruit on which looked singularly large, luxuriant, and abundant, 
as well it might in a situation so warm and sheltered, and where the soil had doubtless been enriched to a more than natural fertility. In two or three places grapevines clambered upon trellises, and bore clusters already purple and promising the richness of Malta or Madeira in their ripened juice. The blighting winds of our rigid climate could not molest these trees and vines. The sunshine, though descending late into this area, and too early intercepted by the height of the surrounding houses, yet lay tropically there, even when less than temperate in every other region. Dreary as was the day, the scene was illuminated by not a few sparrows and other birds, which spread their wings and flitted and fluttered, and alighted now here, now there, and busily scratched their food out of the wormy earth. Most of these winged people seemed to have their domicile in a robust and healthy buttonwood tree. It aspired upward high above the roofs of the houses, and spread a dense head of foliage half across the area. There was a cat, as there invariably is in such places, who evidently thought herself entitled to the privileges of forest life in this close heart of city conventionalisms. I watched her creeping along the low, flat roofs of the offices, descending a flight of wooden steps, gliding among the grass, and besieging the buttonwood tree with murderous purpose against its feathered citizens. But after all, they were birds of city breeding, and doubtless knew how to guard themselves against the peculiar perils of their position. Bewitching to my fancy are all those nooks and crannies where nature, like a stray partridge, hides her head among the long-established haunts of men. It is likewise to be remarked, as a general rule, that there is far more of the picturesque, more truth to native and characteristic tendencies, and vastly greater suggestiveness in the back view of a residence, whether in town or country, than in its front. The latter is always artificial, it is meant for the world's eye, and is therefore a veil and a concealment. Realities keep in the rear, and put forward an advance guard of show and humbug. The posterior aspect of any old farmhouse, behind which a railroad has unexpectedly been opened, is so different from that looking upon the immemorial highway, that the spectator gets new ideas of rural life and individuality in the puff or two of steam-breath which shoots him past the premises. In a city, the distinction between what is offered to the public and what is kept for the family is certainly not less striking. But to return to my window at the back of the hotel, together with a due contemplation of the fruit-trees, the grapevines, the buttonwood-tree, the cat, the birds, and many other particulars, I failed not to study the row of fashionable dwellings to which all these appertained. Here, it must be confessed, there was a general sameness. From the upper story to the first floor, they were so much alike that I could only conceive of the inhabitants as cut out on one identical pattern, like little wooden toy people of German manufacture. One long united roof, with its thousands of slates glittering in the rain, extended over the whole. After the distinctness of separate characters to which I had recently been accustomed, it perplexed and annoyed me not to be able to resolve this combination of human interests into well-defined elements. 
It seemed hardly worth while for more than one of those families to be in existence, since they all had the same glimpse of the sky, all looked into the same area, all received just their equal share of sunshine through the front windows, and all listened to precisely the same noises of the street on which they boarded. Men are so much alike in their nature that they grow intolerable unless varied by their circumstances. Just about this time a waiter entered my room. The truth was I had rung the bell and ordered a sherry cobbler. "'Can you tell me,' I inquired, "'what families reside in any of those houses opposite?' "'The one right opposite is a rather stylish boarding-house,' said the waiter. Two of the gentlemen boarders keep horses at the stable of our establishment. They do things in very good style, sir, the people that live there.' I might have found out nearly as much for myself. On examining the house a little more closely, in one of the upper chambers I saw a young man in a dressing-gown standing before the glass and brushing his hair for a quarter of an hour together. He then spent an equal space of time in the elaborate arrangement of his cravat, and finally made his appearance in a dress-coat, which I suspected to be newly come from the tailor's and now first put on for a dinner-party. At a window of the next story below, two children, prettily dressed, were looking out. By and by a middle-aged gentleman came softly behind them, kissed the little girl, and playfully pulled the little boy's ear. It was a papa, no doubt, just come in from his counting-room or office, and anon appeared mamma, stealing as softly behind papa as he had stolen behind the children, and laying her hand on his shoulder to surprise him. Then followed a kiss between papa and mamma, but a noiseless one, for the children did not turn their heads. "'I bless God for these good folks,' thought I to myself. "'I have not seen a prettier bit of nature in all my summer in the country than they have shown me here in a rather stylish boarding-house. I will pay them a little more attention by and by.' On the first floor an iron balustrade ran along in front of the tall and spacious windows, evidently belonging to a back drawing-room, and far into the interior, through the arch of the sliding doors, I could discern a gleam from the windows of the front apartment. There were no signs of present occupancy in this suite of rooms, the curtains being enveloped in a protective covering which allowed but a small portion of their crimson material to be seen but two housemaids were industriously at work, so that there was good prospect that the boarding-house might not long suffer from the absence of its most expensive and profitable guests. Meanwhile, until they should appear, I cast my eyes downward to the lower regions. There, in the dusk that so early settles into such places, I saw the red glow of the kitchen range. The hot cook, or one of her subordinates with a ladle in her hand, came to draw a cool breath at the back door. As soon as she disappeared, an Irish man-servant in a white jacket crept slyly forth and threw away the fragments of a china dish, which unquestionably he had just broken. Soon afterwards a lady, showily dressed, with a curling front of what must have been false hair, and reddish-brown, I suppose, in hue, though my remoteness allowed me only to guess at such particulars, this respectable mistress of the boarding-house made a momentary transit across the kitchen window, and appeared no more. 
It was her final, comprehensive glance, in order to make sure that soup, fish, and flesh were in a proper state of readiness before the serving up of dinner. There was nothing else worth noticing about the house, unless it be that on the peak of one of the dormer windows which opened out of the roof sat a dove, looking very dreary and forlorn, insomuch that I wondered why she chose to sit there in the chilly rain, while her kindred were doubtless nestling in a warm and comfortable dovecoat. All at once this dove spread her wings, and, launching herself in the air, came flying so straight across the intervening space that I fully expected her to alight directly on my window-sill. In the latter part of her course, however, she swerved aside, flew upward, and vanished, as did likewise the slight fantastic pathos with which I had invested her. End of chapter 17